Rachel Bovard. I'm Ina Stepman. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everybody. Um, it is our last episode before Christmas, and we are excited to see you. We have a interesting show. We're going to cover all the goings on uh, before everybody heads out for the holidays. Um, Ben's going to give us the latest update on the Twitter files, uh, which is something we continue to watch unfold. Um, Emily's going to talk about the news from the January 6th select committee um, and how that is going to play. I'm going to talk about the ongoing fight right now uh, today in the Congress on the omnibus spending bill. And Inez, who's filling in for Josh, is going to cover the Oberlin settlement and all of the drama around that. So uh, with that, I will kick it over to Ben to kick us off. Thanks, Rachel. Well, as we record this, we are now through the seventh installment of the Twitter files, and the sixth itself was noteworthy, and we could spend a full episode on that. But I want to talk about some of the headlines, primarily from this most recent one from Michael Schellenbarger. Uh, among them, which include, and I'll tick through a laundry list, the fact that Twitter was pay paid approximately $3.5 million by the FBI to collude with the FBI in foisting its censorship regime upon us. So for its troubles and its back and forths, repeated weekly meetings and such with the FBI, which seeded the idea, for example, that there could be a hack and dump operation of the likes of the Hunter Biden laptop story, uh, and then proceeded to censor uh, based upon those urgings. Twitter was paid three and a half million dollars. And who knows, by the way, how much the other social media companies were paid for suppressing that story, including Facebook for that matter. Some other headlines as well from this most recent drop, uh, essentially the intelligence community was running an information operation to get corporate and social media companies effectively to kill that story both before and after the Post published that story. Uh, specifically, as we find out in these files throughout 2020, continually grooming, and I think that's the appropriate word to use, grooming Twitter executives and those at other companies in talking about these coming likely foreign influence operations, which I think is notable, by the way, because let's recall, it was this foreign interference task force at the FBI that was coordinating with Twitter et al. And that gave them a rationale, a pretext for saying, well, if it's a foreign actor that's trying to influence our elections, then you have a duty and obligation on national security grounds to censor. And I've drawn an analogy here, by the way, to Russiagate, where they went after the Trump campaign via Carter Page by claiming Carter Page was a foreign agent or worse. And then so basically using the foreign to surveil domestically and get around those tricky firewalls around spying and surveilling on U.S. citizens. I see an analogy here. Uh, beyond that, we know that there were so many Twitter employees who formerly worked at the FBI that they set up their own Slack channel where they provided each of the new onboarded employees with Twitter equivalents of the FBI acronyms that they had been accustomed to. We know as well, I think this is maybe one of the biggest headlines of all, and there really needs to be investigation into it, that there was this so-called tabletop exercise uh, coordinated at the Aspen Institute by a whole slew of basically Russiagate collusion monger, establishment corporate media journalists who wargamed about a coming potential Hunter Biden foreign misinformation operation and about suppressing that story, remarkably in September 2020. 
So who was behind that Aspen Institute tabletop? Who coordinated it? Were there any security authorities who were involved with it? Uh, mighty suspicious. Um, beyond that, I'll just note also that in the prior drop, Matt Taibbi detailed this substantial communications between the FBI and Twitter. Uh, and in connection therewith, we found out that they were looking at these basically anonymous, non-noteworthy accounts with five followers, up to then and including Billy Baldwin, of all people, that the FBI was using its precious resources targeting these individuals, I guess on pretext of them spreading purported foreign mistis and malinformation, when in reality, many of them were just engaged in satire itself. So that from the preeminent law enforcement body in the US, the FBI. So I think you know the, the, these revelations raise a number of important questions. You know, again, I go back to what about every other big tech company, given that these weekly meetings convene with the FBI and SISA and other authorities as well, perhaps ODNI, we're meeting with all manner of other big tech companies. What's happening right now in terms of any sort of conspiracy to violate the First Amendment between our deep state and big tech companies. And then last but not least, well, two more points. One, how about the media scandal in all of this, that the media was a willing participant, again, in suppressing the Hunter Biden story. And now they're suppressing the Twitter files story, of course, because once again, they themselves are complicit in it. And then last but not least, what should Republicans do? Because if you have a security state that is wholly run amok, is eviscerating the First Amendment, is targeting your people, you don't have a free country anymore. So I open those questions up. They're rhetorical, but I, I'd also be genuinely interested to know uh, what you all make of any and all of those themes. So I think that last point that you just brought up, Ben, is the biggest sort of bombshell out of all of this is everything that we've suspected for a long time. You know, we've talked about, oh, the FBI pulling the strings, you know, probably happening, but, you know, whatever. There is now documented evidence of how deep that, that rot goes. And I, you know, you can almost, I guess, call it a conspiracy at this point. It was a, a, a conspiracy among the FBI who had Hunter Biden's laptop, by the way, they had it right before they did this wargaming exercise. Like they knew it, they knew it, ostensibly knew it was on it. They knew it was coming. They plotted to manage it, you know, in, in a sort of psyop way. Right. This is what we do to other apparently our CIA does to other countries. And now we're doing it domestically here, which is to controlling the information flow, controlling, uh, you know, planned detonation of otherwise politically toxic news in a way that benefits the party or, or the party you want to be in power. This is anathema with a free country like I, I it is. You will rarely hear me say that anything is a bigger threat than the big tech companies, I think, but this sort of collusive behavior and this top-down control of this major technology cannot stand. And so I think if there's going to be anything that happens for if Republicans ever control anything again, this cartel has to be broken up. And that starts with a church committee that starts with something that investigates the role of these intelligence companies or in companies, the intelligence uh, apparatus, which I guess working with the big tech companies is maybe that's the appropriate terminology. This has to be addressed uh, or or we we really calling us a free society is just an ancient historical term at this point. Rachel, I know your segment is specifically about the omnibus, but it's sort of chilling to think about this in the context of what's also happening amidst the omnibus um, negotiations, which show how thoroughly undemocratic, to borrow a phrase from the left that uh, 
purports to really love uh, democracy, um, how undemocratic the country has become and in ways that it's just like the frog in the pot of water, um, not realizing it's hot until it's boiling. And again, there were people that were calling attention to this stuff decades ago. Um, you can actually go back to Church himself, who said uh, there was actually a clip going viral on Twitter of, of Church talking just this this week. It's an, an old clip of him that went viral this week talking about how the federal government now has uh, incredible powers <laughs> to surveil people. And this is in like the 70s or the 80s. Um, so so let alone now, let alone in the post 9-11 era. And we're learning more and more every day. And the, the bottom line is that with these Twitter files, it's just been Ro Khanna on the left that's like in a good position here. And there will be nothing to be done if it's not bipartisan. I, I mean, seriously, if this is just a partisan Republican effort, there is a lot of attention that can be drawn to the problem. There are incentives that can be uh, socially sort of put in place, um, if not legally, socially sort of put in place. But unless Democrats wake up and there's a, a bipartisan outrage um, at what's happening in the intelligence community, I'm, I, don't, I don't know where it goes. I mean, I, I, it's just the splint, the great splintering um, is is upon us and you would need to have i think real bi bipartisan outrage to fix that and i'm seeing almost nothing um other than from rokana well so um agree completely with what everyone has said about how serious this is also how sort of unsurprising uh it is it's just surprising to actually get the receipts uh, but this is what of course so many people suspected was actually going on this communication was completely constant like every day or two there were emails going back and forth between the fbi um and uh, yoel roth right and and there was a, a bit of a um you know there was definitely the power in the relationship was definitely in the hands of the government agencies right because you see even this guy right uh yoel roth was uncomfortable with a couple of the things that the FBI was sending to him to basically censor. Um, and, and he was basically overwritten or he overrode himself because he had to defer uh, to, to the FBI. So for, for one, you know, the, the entire idea that this is a private company or a private service, um, we're seeing sort of the tentacles going in both directions very, very clearly now between the state. And if anything, the state is to what Rachel said about which one is, is scarier. Um, you know, the state is in the driver's position in a lot of these, these communications. Um, and in terms of how far the warnings go back about this, I would go even further back. Uh, I, would, I would go to Eisenhower uh, in his farewell address, which is the, the favorite often of, of liberals, at least to cite parts of this about the military industrial complex, but he actually devotes equal time to a technological scientific uh, complex between essentially the administrative state um, and technological companies, technocrats working at those companies. Um, and, and I think that's really what, what's happened. We've, we've seen uh, that essentially the tendrils from each side of this thing go in. And, and I, I don't think anything demonstrates that better, that revolving door better than what Ben said in the beginning about the fact that there was a separate Slack channel. There's so many people who used to work for the FBI at Twitter. I think um, that they had their own separate Slack channel. I think that really underlines that these are fundamentally the same people. And more, more unfortunately, they have a very similar worldview. Right now, we have receipts. We have these emails, right? Because of the Twitter files, because of this unusual circumstance where Elon Musk bought the company, 
you know, the next time there won't be any receipts, right? They'll pick up the phone and call or they'll communicate in some way or they'll just coordinate because they basically want the same thing. So they just need to drop a hint or a wink. The idea that we're going to continually find, quote unquote, smoking guns on this stuff, I think actually doesn't really get at the heart of the problem, which is that these people are fundamentally very similar. They, they do comprise a sort of class of their own. They have virtually identical political views and the coordination between them often doesn't even have to be this explicit. We're, we just have this, this explicit coordination because one, they haven't been caught this way before. And second, because you know this very unusual circumstance where the, the richest man in the world bought one of these companies. So I think it's really important to understand that this clearly needs to be fixed by public policy. We can't rely on you know there always being an Elon Musk or a smoking gun in one of these exchanges. Right. All right. Well, I think I'm up next um, and I will be talking about the speaking of the rogue intelligence community. We're going to be talking here about the January 6th committee. It's incredible, truly incredible how many times over the last couple of years we have had to come here and talk about what's going on uh, as it pertains to not just the J6 committee, but various investigations and various conversations about January 6th, whether it's Steve Schmidt saying that it was worse than 9-11, I believe he said that on MSNBC, um, or any of the other you know, absurd hyperbole surrounding the, the genuinely very tragic and horrific events of that day. Uh, we are here now to discuss the January 6th committee's concluding report. They released an executive summary on Monday we are taping on Tuesday. It's expected that the full report will be released on Wednesday. It's also expected that Republicans in the House will be re releasing a report of their own, uh, timed to coincide with the release of the Wednesday report from the J6 committee that uh, actually goes into security failures. And I'm very fascinated by that topic. Again, as somebody who was reporting on it there, I've, I've really never understood how that all snowballed. Um, it's, it's extremely strange, and it makes it's the, it's the number one thing that should have been the, the topic of conversation um, when we discuss January 6th. Uh, the, the, the broad conversation about January 6th should have always heavily featured the security failures. And instead, it's, it's such a footnote that people who worked on the January 6th committee were telling the media they're upset that a lot of the work that went into their report on their research on the security failures was not going to be included in Liz Cheney's final report. What is uh, included in Liz Cheney's final report um, is a recommendation of charges against Donald Trump, a recommendation to the Department of Justice that there will be criminal charges, uh, that there should be criminal charges on four different counts against Trump. So those charges are um, obstructing an official proceeding, conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to make false statements to the federal government, and inciting an insurrection. Um, the case for criminal charges on all of those counts, I think, is uh, exceedingly weak. I think they're very vague. I think there's, you know, most of the country is, is pretty firmly in the camp that the way Trump conducted himself that day was uh, wildly inappropriate, uh, although people sort of vary in their degrees to which they think he acted inappropriately. I think most people would agree that uh, he acted inappropriately between the election and that day. But um, 
the Democrats in the House have spent the last couple of years using that uh, as an excuse to just completely overreach, um, to ignore very real problems like the amount of informants the FBI had in the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, uh, which we now know about in in pretty significant numbers. One of the uh, actually like second in command in the Oath Keepers was an FBI informant. And again, we've learned that almost two years later, uh, that's getting confirmed in the media. Um, and, and now, again, there's this idea that if Trump is charged with inciting an insurrection, um, you know, it, it bars him from running for office again. That's also not super clear uh, when it comes to the presidency. So I, th this week is just, again, being dominated by January 6th news. It's again being, the, the media is being consumed by the official partisan Democrat narrative. Um, and that's what they're trying to write into the first draft of history, as they like to say. Um, and I think it's it's largely been successful. Um, I, I think they, they have really uh, done what they set out to do, which was create a partisan narrative the media would accept and to beat it into the public consciousness month after after month after month. So let me turn it open to the group now uh, for some final reactions here as the January 6th report summary came out on Monday. We're expecting the full thing this week. We're expecting Republican rebuttal of sorts on the security front. What's everyone make of this? I'm kind of curious about, you know, I think Emily, you're right that the goal was to create a specific narrative that would be picked up and accepted by the media and then you know, will be the official written documentation of the day. But what's also been interesting to me about this committee is that it has failed to thrive to some extent with sort of the grassroots public, right? This was supposed to be like the thing, you know, that everyone was like, you know, counting down and watching and all this stuff. Although, and they, to the extent that they literally hired, I think, a TV executive to, to manage their hearings, a couple of which were done in prime time, which I've never seen before in my life. I've never seen a congressional committee like tee up a productive or a produced, a slickly produced with graphics and, you know, video prime time thing. And it, it really didn't move the needle at all. Um, Chris Caldwell had a piece in the New York Times about this, about polling that literally basically showed if you were on one side or the other of the January 6th debate, the January 6th committee, select committee moved, did not move you at all. Um, and I think because it was so one-sided, right, it didn't have any credibility with anyone. And there's, I think there was also articles coming out about leaks from the staff saying they were upset because Liz Cheney, like, moved their stuff out of the final report because she wanted it to be solely focused on Trump. They were focused on all these other areas of failure, as Emily mentioned, but, you know, she had one job and it was to, you know, hang Donald Trump with his report and she was going to do it. That being said, what happened here is so consequential, right? Like I have, I think, enumerated more than once on this podcast, and I'm going to, you know, enumerate it again, that the January 6th Select Committee blew up House precedent in terms of what can be now be done in an investigation. It has, you know, torn down any vestige of norms or sort of institutional behavior on part of the House. And this is now in, these are tools now that I think will be used by future Congresses, Republican or Democrat, you know, in pursuit of their goals. And so we are in a new, new uh, avenue of our politics um, in which we persecute our political opponents to to jail, apparently. Um, and I think that that is 
And the media has nothing to say about it. The media has nothing to say about it. And that ultimately is the story that that is written by this. It's not what Liz Cheney says. It is sort of the junta uh, quality that our politics now now has. Yeah, I would just say the the one thing is I think that quality certainly exists on one side of this, namely kind of the Democrat slash ruling class slash uniparty side. But let's let's fast forward. Let's assume that there is going to be something like a church style committee under Republican House, which, by the way, I think there's no guarantee of. We have seen inklings of the fact that there will be some investigation into FBI weaponization slash politicization. Although note that those whistleblowers who have come out and publicly revealed themselves have themselves said they haven't been contacted by those like on the House Judiciary Committee, for example, who would be leading those hearings. Uh, And of course, the Church Committee was a special committee relative to uh, just what you would see under House Judiciary or oversight, et cetera. Uh, So what powers would that committee take upon itself? I guess my point would be, if there is a church-style committee, will it have the same intensity, vigor? Will it usurp the same powers? And then will it be as relentless in pursuit of its ends as the J6 committee? Uh, I would bet not. I I assume that they will try to restore normal order and some semblance of balance, et cetera. And we may all agree that that is a good thing. But nevertheless, I I think the way that Democrats act, they expect that Republicans would never fight fire with fire and operate in the same way. Uh, Rightly or wrongly, and we've debated that before, uh, but I do think that's notable. I, I, I will. So I will. I, I agree with Rachel that kind of on the merits, this was like a nothing burger politically for the American people. I don't know how many people changed their votes because of what the January 6th committee did. But institutionally, it did have a massive effect. And beyond the institutional part of it, it did have a real effect on the lives of those who were broken, bankrupted, and or had to go through litigation and were convicted in certain instances as a consequence of this. And by the way, there were these ethics referrals as well, which maybe you call them slaps on the wrist when it comes to members of Congress. We've also had members of Congress's communications looked at, their cell phones seized, et cetera, in connection with the whole broad January 6th prosecution. And let's note, by the way, the process is the punishment here. If you had to go and give any sort of testimony to this committee, you were paying legal fees for it. Those are real costs. And, and that's like a black letter on you forever, which is, I think, the point of a lot of these various different tribunals being brought against political opposition in this country. It's the process as punishment. Whether you're Steve Bannon or whether you're a J Sixer who might have been in Washington, D.C. and didn't even do anything on that day, and as the FBI with a battering ram smashing down the door to your house. That, that is kind of the point of these processes. So I think that is chilling. I will say on the merits, you know, I'd love to know what about the 14,000 hours of video that they're sitting on that we haven't seen? What's the real story with the informants? Uh, did DC did the police there actually follow protocol that day? How could it possibly be that this building, the sacred building, was just overrun on a given day? Um, and last but not least, on the absurd charges point, I agree that the referrals themselves are kind of political statements and not more than that. But let's not forget, two people were convicted of seditious conspiracy in connection with January 6th quite recently. So these charges, as asinine as they are on the merits and as wildly political as they seem, can hold up in a court of law in Washington, D.C. And I do think that points to what's coming with Donald Trump in a pending potential indictment over the next year plus. Yeah, I, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I'll, I'll just be brief. Um, 
the, the bottom line here is that we can't endure two standards of justice, whether that's for Donald Trump um, coming out. This is, as Rachel said, this, you know, attempt to basically hang Donald Trump with with this committee that has, you know, taken on more and additional powers that Republicans should then use. They probably won't. Um, but more fundamentally, whether you're you are Donald Trump or you are uh, one of the people who just attended the rally that day, whether you actually did break the law, whether you were a rioter, whether you broke into the Capitol, um, we have absolutely no uh, expectation anymore um, that, that that there aren't going to be two standards of justice applied. And and um, in terms of the standard of like <laughs> what set this standard, especially within the government, that you know. Um, agencies can completely and, and bureaucrats can completely abuse this kind of power politically. Um, I don't want to be the sort of Tea Party broken clock, but the fact that nothing happened to Lois Lerner is the standard for this, right? She came before Congress, she testified, it was very clear that the IRS was politically weaponized against particular Americans because they had a political perspective that was not enjoyed by the bureaucrats and the IRS. Um, nothing happened to her. And I think that's that's the standard. This is obviously sort of more broad based and therefore more important. But I do think that the, the precedent is there. Nothing was done then. Um, we'll see if something is done now. But regardless, it, 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 there, there is a great danger to not doing um, a full investigation and applying criminal penalties where appropriate. And the danger is that the the that ordinary Americans conclude that they will no longer, if accused of a crime, will no longer be judged uh, in a fair way or on the merits of their behavior. And that, I mean, that brings down states, empires, um, and obviously brings down republics. So that standard clearly can't endure, but I know we're past time. Well, speaking of uh, standards be slipping, we'll go back to <laughs> the Capitol Hill <laughs> and talk about work, uh, what's going on with spending bills. So as Emily mentioned, we're recording this on a Tuesday. The Congress is currently debating the passage of, or will be shortly debating the passage of a 4,000 page omnibus spending bill, which is all the year's discretionary spending bills, all 12 of them wrapped into one package. Now, what's it, the reason why I bring this up is, you know, to discuss kind of what's at stake here. So the spending bill that, that is currently being debated is negotiated by the Democratic House, the Democratic Senate to be signed by a Democratic president. Keep in mind that in just a few short weeks, we will be welcoming or ushering in a Republican House. Okay. The debate right now is not between passing an omnibus or a shutdown. It is between passing an omnibus and a short-term continuing resolution, which would kick the funding over to, you know, February or March to then allow the House Republicans to write these spending bills. Now, there's a couple of reasons this is obviously important. First, it is absolutely insane to me that some Senate Republicans are actually arguing, oh, no, this is the best deal we could get with a fully democratic government, as opposed to, no, letting a Republican House negotiate these spending agreements. Uh, at least we're starting from a better position to be able to negotiate these in the Senate. But the second issue that, there, that I think is very important to consider here is that everything that we were just talking about in terms of, you know, big tech, his roles with, with the FBI, what the Intel community has been up to, all these things that are going to be rifed for oversight in a Republican House, the only way to impact change, right? What, what The only way to make oversight meaningful is on in the spending process, right? You uncover dirt that's going on. You then put a rider in an appropriations bill that says, this cannot happen. This office is defunded. You do not have money to do X, Y, or Z. 
by putting, locking in a full year spending bill, you are literally deleveraging de the incoming House majority from doing any of that. You have Senate Republicans who are literally saying, yeah, that's cute that we have a House Republican majority, but no, we want our 7,500 earmarks that are in this bill, because to be clear, that's what is happening. Uh, there was a great uh, quote that Richard Shelby, who is the outgoing uh, appropriate Republican appropriations chair, really wants this omnibus bill because he has the most earmarks, right, out of anyone in this bill. He gave an amazing quote to Bloomberg, Bloomberg earlier. I think it was actually last week. He said, oh, if we don't get an omnibus, he said, I won't, I'll be gone. I'll be cutting the grass and running errands for my wife. They'd have to start all over. And this is the money part. I wouldn't get anything. That was literally his quote, which tells you about the whole game, right? This isn't about the country. This isn't about Ukraine spending. This is about parity between defense and non-defense. This is about Richard Shelby's earmarks and the 7,500 other uh, earmarks that people are getting in this bill. That's the only thing this is about. And the cost of that is any oversight, any muscle, that the House Republicans could muster against the Democratic White House and the Democratic, you know, priorities uh, that have been we've been living under. And I think to add insult to injury, you know, people will say, well, it's just one fiscal year. They have a second fiscal year they're able to do that in. Well, not really, because we know how this process works. You get a year-long omnibus. And then when you hit that year in September, you, you get a CR to the spring. And at that point, oh no, it's a presidential cycle. We can't do spending bills this year. So therefore we get another CR or another omnibus. So we are effectively locking in uh, democratic spending priorities for the next three years, despite having a house Republican majority. It's, it, it is, this is actually in all, my time in Washington. This is one of the most cynical moves I've seen lately. Uh, and so I think it's worth flagging. You have Senate Republicans that could slow this down, but seem bent on just asking for an amendment process, which, okay, that's fine, but you're not stopping anything. Um, so I guess I just take it open for thoughts, ruminations, despair. Um, <laughs> yeah, what's what's really remarkable is my standards for Republicans are so low. Um, and yet I, even I am continually shocked by the, not by the fact that they have no principles, not by the fact that they have no backbone, but by the fact that they can't even be counted upon to be partisan, like that actually <laughs> seems like a lower, like that seems like the most basic thing that we're always complaining about with regard to, you know, our politicians, and the Republican party, right? Like uh, whatever the you know, Democratic party, right? oh, they're so partisan. They don't care about the country. They're not actually trying to stand on principle. All of that aside right now, they're not even standing on partisanship, right? The, in, in the same way, and I think this is very similar to the fact that Mitch McConnell has clearly decided that he would rather not have the majority and he would rather have fewer Republicans elected if they're not the type of Republicans that he likes. That is truly setting the floor as low as possible that we at least, if, if you're the head or of, of a major branch of the Republican Party, that you should be in favor of at least the Republican Party. If you're not in favor of representing the voters, you know, we, we've already crossed that, you know, sort of disappointment a long time ago but they're not even in favor of sort of the party power. Um, and I think that is truly <laughs> remarkable. Um, that being said, it's, it's very disappointing to hear about uh, the fact that the, the Republican House will be hamstrung in this way. Um, and But very clearly, this is what the leadership of the party wants. And I think we should be on the lookout for a bunch of show votes that a lot of people in conservative media will be then, you know, you know, clapping about, look, you know, look what they're standing for. No, this is where it actually matters when they actually could apply power and give themselves real power, right? Um, it's not the the 20,000 times they took the vote on Obamacare, on repealing Obamacare, right? Um, before making sure that it wasn't repealed. 
this is when the, those kinds of power transactions happen and purposely taking away the party's power to do anything now when people, you know, who aren't listening to this podcast or not listening to Rachel, you know, write about this and speak about this, they're not going to know that actually what happens from here on out is largely a kabuki show, right? It's largely political theater from here on out. This is where the real political power was negotiated and we lost again. I just want to underline one point, which is that given the lack of even fighting on partisanship, we, as in we, the people lost, but I don't think that the Republican senators who are going along with this feel that they lost. I think what we view as failure, they view as success. Ultimately, it isn't partisan. They are one and the same, part of the same cast, essentially, in Washington, D.C. And what this reflects is a big F you to the American people, essentially. It's it's actually rubbing in our faces the contempt that they have for us. And just to kind of put some specific earmarks on this. Scott Parkinson from Club for Growth has a thread where he ticks through all of some of the most absurd aspects of this omnibus bill, if we want to call it, or I guess this omnibus bill. So Senator Leahy gets the Lake Champlain Bassin program renamed the Patrick Leahy Lake Champlain Bassin program, 35 million a year to that program from 2023 to 27. We've talked about Richard Shelby, as Parkinson notes, almost everything in Alabama is already named for him. But now the FBI at Redstone Arsenal will be named the Richard Shelby Center for Innovation and Advanced Training. Uh, millions more to the Jimmy Carter Museum and the Ulysses S. Grant Museum. Uh, beyond that, there's they're also going to be funding a diversity, equity, and inclusion legislative office with a few million bucks. And the earmarks go on and on here. And I think what this shows you is they don't. They, this money means nothing to them. It means everything to us. We're paying for this, but we're paying for the corruption, and they don't care even about. They're not. They're not even trying to hide it at this point. There's no shame. They're actively advertising it. And you know, Dave Reboy, we've mentioned before, often writes about national security, but he has this Substack, late republic nonsense. I think this defines late republic nonsense. It's not a serious country anymore when these are the kinds of earmarks and the wasteful spending of our hard-earned money that we see in Washington. And what's the point of a Republican party if they're going to bless this this blasphemous sort of piece of legislation that's become all too common? It, there's nothing more depressing than the annual omnibus negotiations because every year it feels so incredibly hopeless that we are, once again, this is how we run and fund the United States government um, and there's zero will. I mean, there there will be some talk from obviously uh, the, the more principled members of, let's say, just the Republican Party um, about how ridiculous and absurd the whole theater is, the whole exercise is, but there's, there's just never any will. They don't have enough people on either side of the aisle um, to, to seriously do something to get us out of this just absurd rut. And there you have the late Republic nonsense when you know problems become unfixable, you know, desperate problems become unfixable. So on that note, I'll toss it over to Inez. Yeah, I'd like to change gears a little bit just to demonstrate, I think in many ways it underscores what we've been talking about with regard to all of these um, other larger issues. But I, I wanna talk about the Oberlin settlement. Um, this is a case that might seem familiar to you and that's because it's been going on for a very long time. So uh, just to give a, a quick bit of background, this is a small family business uh, that is nearby to Oberlin College. 
And um, in 2016, right, <laughs> right, actually, it actually happened the day after the election. So uh, right after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, so that's how long this this has been going on. There was an incident with shoplifting. Um, the the family son ran after some shoplifters. There was an altercation um, in which actually those students beat up the shopkeeper's son, right, um, and. It became, because the, the perpetrators were Black, they were students of Oberlin, there was a huge protest in Oberlin College and they smeared the shop as racist. Now, this family sued for defamation, sued Oberlin College for defamation because Oberlin College sent out all these emails basically saying the shop is racist, right? Um, that were totally contrary to the facts of what actually happened. Um, and we all know here, I think, that it's very difficult to win under US defamation law. They won under US defamation law. That was three years ago. And it has taken another three years for them to finally exhaust all the appeals within. Um, finally, the Ohio Supreme Court uh, just a couple of days ago has decided that they, they denied the final appeal from the university. So the university will have to write a $36 million check okay, to this family, the, the father of which has since passed away. right? So um, the reason I bring up this case is because I've seen it cited in a lot of conservative media is basically a victory lap, right? Oh, the, you know, Oberlin College is going to pay out for lying about, you know, the usual racist stuff. Um, they're actually going to have to pay out a defamation suit. $36 million is not chump change, right? Um, and I think that is exactly the wrong way to look at it. I think it's a, a perfect encapsulation of why we cannot sue our way out of the political problems not only in the universities, but in, in the larger American body politic, right? So this family has been pursuing this case for six years in court. They're only now going to see a dime of that money. And furthermore, Oberlin sent out a, uh, another email, not apologizing, not retracting, just saying, don't worry about this $36 million. This is not going to affect the university. Well, they have a billion dollar endowment. So $36 million, not that much um, skin off their nose, even though it is a quite large settlement. And in fact, this settlement is much larger than a lot of the First Amendment settlements. So we're always pointed to essentially conservative victories in court. David French in particular loves to point out that actually this is a golden age for First Amendment cases or whatever, right? That it turns out not to matter because universities would rather settle every six, eight or 10 years with, with one family like this in a defamation lawsuit or in a first amendment lawsuit, they would rather settle uh, every few years and, and make a payment out of their enormous coffers, enormous um, endowment funds and enormous funds available to the universities, which by the way, taxpayers um, and, and all of the programs that taxpayers back and pay for are a large part of the reason why universities have been able to amass such incredible wealth that makes them immune to these kinds of lawsuits. Um, but, but fundamentally, these universities are going to continue doing the same thing. It's not going to make them think twice. In fact, this is just the cost of doing business to them. They are way more afraid of pissing off the woke mob on campus and being accused of being racist or whatever other leftist buzzword is than they are of paying out one of these settlements every decade. They would rather do that. And that's why these lawsuits are so ineffective, even though they're, they, they seem like W's um, for the right on paper in the courts. And I think that's just really important to understand that again, specifically with regard to universities, we are going to have to hit them in a legislative way where it hurts um, and actually make the sums of money uh, that are available, not just in these lawsuits, but just the sums of money that are actually available to them that are the lifeblood of how they operate their business because it is a business. 
um, we are actually going to have to control those sums of money. And that's public policy. So lawsuits are great. I'm glad Oberlin's going to pay this family $36 million. It's the least they deserve after the hell that they've been to, through for the last six years. But this is not, we're not going to sue our way out of this mess. We have to actually use power and legislate in order to, to use that mess. And I'll kick it back out to everybody um, for thoughts about that, whether it's about um, these lawsuits with regard to universities, uh, defamation law, or just this fundamental dynamic that, in fact, institutional power and wealth tend to overwhelm the occasional, you know, W in court. Yeah, I agree completely with Inez. If this is your victory lap case, then we're in uh, deep trouble indeed, although some of us are, are reasonably clear-eyed about that, um, because this case study is just perfect to Inez's point. I mean, you couldn't, you could not write a script as perfect as what happened tragically to this family. Uh, it brings in all of the different problems. You have uh, the, the sort of uh, woke police uh, latching onto people right away. Someone actually passed away because they would rather fight for their family's business um, than immediately start funneling that money into medical treatment. I mean, it's just like an, an absolutely incredible, incredible, tragic tale. Um, and if, if this is what people have to do, you can look at Jack Phillips, right? Uh, look at Jack Phillips, look at Laurie Smith. Um, if this is what people have to do to live out their principles, which are very reasonable principles, we're not talking about uh, Wicca or anything weird like that. We're just talking about people living normal, reasonable lives. If this is what normal people are subjected to for trying to live out their, their reasonable, normal lives, um, this family wasn't chasing a lawsuit. They weren't asking to become the center of national attention. They weren't asking to have any trouble with Oberlin at all. They served the community for, for decades, um, over a century. And this is what this is what they get. And it, it wasn't anything expected. It just happened one night. Your life can change in, in an instant. Um, and you don't have to do anything wrong in order for that to be the case and to be smeared as a bigot, to be smeared as a, a person of, of ill repute. I mean, it's just truly, truly tragic. And if, if years long lawsuits where a school has to be pushed multiple times to cough up the funds, um, it, if that's not, um, it, or if, if that's the, the solution to this problem, um, then obviously we have bigger problems than, than just what's, uh, some of these folks are experiencing. The, the biggest problem is that there's a, a cultural root, cultural rot, um, that our government can't function. Uh, what's the John Adams quote? Um, you know, the, this can't function without a moral populace. And we're clearly in that, uh, situation right now. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a classic example of the process is the punishment. Right. And that's like what people I think in the, well, you can just sue camp, which is the, you know, the sort of David French camp and all the people who didn't really understand the respect for marriage act debate uh, that was going on in the Senate a few weeks ago. They just fundamentally do not understand that this is, this is how the left wins, right? They may lose in court in the end, but they have virtually bankrupt or not virtually literally bankrupted uh, people completely made people social pariahs, effectively ruined people's lives. I mean, Jack Phillips has been in court. He he won at the Supreme Court, but he's been dragged back to court like a bunch of times after that. Like this is this is now the era in which we live. So I think Inez is perfectly correct to say something has to change so we don't live in that nexus anymore, right? That the, the courts are useful, but they're not the solution here. Not when your life is effectively over because you've been taken to court uh, and in the process 
had your complete like access to public life uh, limited or tinged or hampered in some way. This is just unsustainable. And the left has figured this out. The right, unfortunately, has not. Yeah, briefly, I, I would just say if if the default argument is that you have to sue to win, then you've already lost because you shouldn't have to even enter into that sort of process to defend your most basic rights to exist and live a life that you deem fulfilling and pursue happiness in the ways you see fit. Um, you know, I, I also kind of return to what Emily said about immoral people or virtuous people and also you know, Ben Franklin or Republic, if you can keep it. Even if you have the most splendidly designed institutions and the most impeccably crafted laws, rules, and regulations, and the like, it really means nothing if you don't have a people behind it. Uh, these, you know, the Constitution becomes a piece of paper essentially. And I think you see that kind of rot, which goes beyond just the corruption of the institutions, but down to the people who fill those institutions themselves. And while, yes, absolutely, we need to try to use, avail ourselves of every level, lever of power possible, uh, it is daunting when you consider how deep the rot goes and how it transcends the laws to make it such that the laws don't mean what they say clearly on paper in so many different respects. Uh, so it points to a broader rot and corruption. Um, and, you know, more and more Americans know what time it is, but the other side does not know that we know what time it is. And until that paradigm changes, uh, it's going to be processed as punishment till the end of the Republic. So on that happy note, uh, we'll turn now to final thoughts. <laughs> I don't know if anybody wants to kick us off. I, I can kick us off here just um, to note the other, I think, important news of this week. Um, Title 42 uh, is going, which allows migrants to be essentially expelled for COVID era reasons, um, is going to be staying in place, uh, at least temporarily, thanks to Justice Roberts and the Supreme Court. Um, it was set to expire on December 21st. Um, but it, so that's, that's for us recording today, that's tomorrow. Um, it will not expire last minute order from the Supreme Court. Um, but to me, the larger point here, first of all, obviously there's, there's already an incredible, um, incredibly dangerous situation at the border. We have the democratic mayor, for example, of San Antonio coming out and, and like declaring a state of emergency in anticipation of this one tool that is actually used, um, uh, to prevent the full throated flood of migrants across the U.S. border um, set to expire. But to me, it just shows how broken the system is that we are dependent on this pandemic era public health justification because we can't enforce our immigration laws on their merits. Um, and that that really, I think, does sum up a lot of what we were talking about here in terms of, of the decay and, and the, the really institutional rot here is that we're dependent on this essential, essentially uh, bureaucratic machination um, to keep an, an a last minute Supreme Court order, right, within 24 hours of expiration in order to keep just the status quo, which is already a disaster um, at the southern border. So I, I think that's just something worth keeping an eye on. Um, but but just the structure of it, the fact that we're dependent on something that's frankly, obviously probably should be expired, right? Like the Biden administration really can't justify keeping in place the sort of um, pandemic era restrictions in some uh, fields of, of policy and not in others. It's that is obviously like a game of convenience for them. Um, but 
regardless, like this is the only thing that was hanging in between literally a state of emergency from Democrats calling a state of emergency on the Texas border. Um, and and uh, all <laughs> again, this is not normal order of business, just like the omnibus bill and the continual CRs and the continual like this is this is not should not be the, the normal order of conducting business. And yet for a republic that seems like it's in decline, that seems like the rot is institutionally very, very deep, it seems like we're increasingly dependent on these kinds of like fly by the seat of your pants, kind of last minute uh, cobbled together bureaucratic excuses just to keep, quote unquote, uh, normalcy continuing. Um, and that, that obviously cannot hold forever. There have to be structural changes in order to actually restore the process of making law executing law in a, in a normal way rather than relying on these kinds of cobbled together last minute, um, you know, sort of uh, deus ex machina Supreme Court decisions. Yeah, uh, there, there absolutely have to be structural changes, although we've talked about this in just about every segment today. I'm so pessimistic that we're anywhere near um, having the ability to do that anymore. Um, to Ben's point about late Republic nonsense, as David would say, that's what it feels like on issue after issue is that there are obvious structural problems that need to be addressed and there's no will um, or political ability to address them, period. Um, and Title 42 is just a great example um, of how it's it's just like Woodrow Wilson's world and we're all living in it. But even Woodrow Wilson himself was very concerned um, about the the shift, at least he, he said, you know, I don't think he really foresaw what would uh, become of the country. Um, but he, he said, you know, we, we can't shift all of our, we have to be careful not to shift all of the power um, out of the hands of, you know, the democratic system to unaccountable bureaucrats. Um, and one of the reasons we have such a mess at the border and one of the reasons that Title 42, I mean, the pandemic is over. Title 42 actually really shouldn't still be in place. I understand that it's an emergency order, <clears throat> because uh, the emergency in this case is beyond just the pandemic. Um, I understand that it's it's helped the situation. I've seen it. Um, but we can't fix this problem because all of these cities across the country are completely unaccountable to the rule of law because they're sanctuary cities. And sanctuary cities lure people here because they know they can disappear into the shadows once they cross as they're awaiting an asylum hearing or something like that. Um, so to, to Inez's point, this is another really important example of exactly why we're failing to function because this, this patchwork of, uh, unaccountable, of, of unaccountability is just impossible to function with as a country. And part of the reason for that, if not the entire reason for that, and I mean this seriously, is because of the damn media. Because the media gives a pass to anybody who's who has a sanctuary city so that their voters have no idea how dangerous this is for migrants. They have no idea how uh, powerful this is for cartels. Um, and you can do this on issue after issue. The same thing with the January 6th committee. How are they able to get away with reshaping the powers of Congress? Because the media cheered them on and or ignored what they did so that there's no incentive for politicians um, to function in our Republican system of government. There's no incentive for them to be accountable to people because people have no idea what the heck they're even doing. So it, all of this, I, I really believe is downstream of media malfeasance because with a stronger media, there would be uh, much, much, much less incentive for, for uh, the left and Republicans as well to uh, break the, the sort of uh, regular um, the rules and, and be more accountable to their constituents. 
Well, and on that point about the media and even more broadly than the media, the academy and our cultural institutions as well, what are the problems at the border really stem from at the end of the day? The argument that borders are bigoted and so thus you shouldn't have them. That in and of itself underlies the entire argument against being a sovereign nation, that is being a nation. Uh, and so consequently, everything, the mass amnesties, the unwillingness or inability to do anything to stem the tide of immigration stems at the end of the day from that. And a, a belief that it's immoral to have borders, period, full stop. And of course, the media plays a huge role in ginning up that particular argument. Um, you know, transitioning to another pessimistic area, just briefly, because I've been in my mind playing out and I haven't written it all down and put pen to paper yet on it, you know, what a church style committee would look like and how powerful it would even be at the end of the day. You know, I think there there should there ought to be questions about, you know, what kind of powers would such a committee have? Who would staff it? What kind of protections would there be for whistleblowers in place? All of these things are necessary to do the oversight work to further to basically have a Twitter files dump on every single powerful aspect of society that our intelligence apparatus has essentially corrupted and colluded with in targeting political dissenters and pushing its own power on us. But the the broadness of that weaponization and hyperpoliticization is so great that it really has to be targeted. There have to be prioritization. There has to be prioritization in such a process in a two-year Republican House of what you actually want to get to the bottom of. And then on top of that, what is the end game at the end of the day? What is the legislative purpose? What laws are you going to try to write as a consequence of it? Are there going to be criminal referrals? And by the way, you're referring them to this Justice Department. So what comes of it? Is that essentially a protest set of criminal referrals as well? And then will you actually use the power of the purse to threaten the funding of these agencies and try to alter their behaviors? But last but not least, on that point that Emily brought up about unaccountable bureaucrats and the like, not really talked about is how do you think the intelligence apparatus, the national security law enforcement apparatus would respond to the extent there was a church committee that was as zealous, a, a new church style committee that was as zealous as the J6 committee? You know, I always go back to Chuck Schumer talking about with Trump, they'll get you six ways from Sunday. Can you imagine the raft of dirty tricks that would be played on any member of Congress who would dare to actually threaten the power of these agencies and try to hold them accountable? And I think that right there, that chill and as potentially a deterrent to getting to the bottom of any of these raft of massive scandals, that alone speaks to the fact that the administrative state has essentially eclipsed every other branch of government and every other institution of society in terms of its power. Yeah, the last gasp, I think, of addressing any of these questions right now is in the lap of, of the United States Senate, right? Are you going to trade away the power to be able to do any of this stuff by locking in these massive spending priorities, Richard Shelby's earmarks, apparently a, a $1.5 million vanity project to document the COVID history, which I think is just going to be a vanity project for Tony Fauci. Uh, so all of this, I think, you know, hopefully will, I guess will be decided in the next two days. So <laughs> on that cheery note, uh, but I will say uh, on, as a point of personal privilege, this will be my last NatCon squad for the time being. I am uh, sub being subsumed again by the Borg. I'm going back to work in the, in the Senate for a little bit. So uh, I will be off of, of the podcast circuit, but I will hope to see you all uh, in some other capacity again soon. But on that note, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas. On behalf of Inez, Ben, and Emily, I'm Rachel Bovard, and they will see you on the next NatCon Squad. Music